Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Rabina podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in a series we've titled Paradox, A Different Way to Live. In this series, we will uncover the profound truths hidden within these seemingly contradictory statements as we embrace the challenge to follow Jesus' footsteps and be a catalyst for change in our world. We pray that this message is a blessing. Hey, today, friends, we're stepping into week three of our Paradox series. And it is, it is a full text. It's a, it's a heavy text. And I'm going to need the power of God. I know we've prayed, but there's no such thing as praying too much. There's also no such thing as being waved at too much by the front row because we need to release our young people. Teenagers, if you're in high school, why don't you guys head on out? They're like, please, Lord, don't let him start before he releases us. They're, um, they're having someone from Wesley Mission come talk to them today about what happened with their funds that they raised their stall. And then they're also going to reap through the Bible today as well, which is fantastic, discipling our young people. On that note, let's uh, ask for God's help and that Michael would remember the things he's called to do. Let's pray. Jesus, we love You. We, we have nowhere near the amount of love for You that You have for us. And so we just rest in that today. Whether we're online or in the room, we just acknowledge you are here with us. Your Spirit is with us. It is in us. God, as we start to think about the nature of love and how we are called to love, would you challenge us? Make this a safe place where we can know conviction and love at the same time. And God, lead us to be more like your Son. Less of me, more of you, we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Now, I don't know if we have any Super Bowl fans in the room. I know I've done a lot of illustrating about how much I am terrible at sport. The truth is, friends, I wish I was good at sport because there are some sports I really enjoy watching, like the NFL. I think it's a great game. And uh, every year at the Super Bowl, I'm a bandwagoner. Not really, but like I don't really watch much the Super Bowl unless the Patriots end up in the grand into the Super Bowl, in which case I am there every time they're on. Love the Patriots. But if you don't know what the Super Bowl is, it is like the penultimate affair, the penultimate ultimate moment in American sport where it runs once a year is the like climatic grand final of their football arena. And what happens at the Super Bowl is that they sh- they actually sell advertising space at the Super Bowl for a premium amount. To have a 30 second ad during the Super Bowl costs something like, it costs tens of millions of dollars just to have the slot, let alone to make the ad. And if you've never seen Super Bowl ads, it's actually, you know, probably something you could, you could go home and watch on YouTube, maybe not with the kids, they're not all phenomenally child appropriate, but they're creative, they're imaginative because they want to use that time slot really, really well. This year, there was a new ad that was launched. A company, a philanthropic company in the States decided to launch an ad called He Gets Us. It was an ad about Jesus. And they wanted to use a moment when a majority of America was going to be watching the screen to promote the message of Jesus. And the way they did it was this, the images will be behind me on the screen. They had a montage of images played over some somber music of people who are obviously not getting along. And in this moment, these people, these different images start to incite these questions of what's happening. We see images of protests. We see images of family breakdown. We see images of these tense moments of people getting offended at each other. We're obviously, right, in the middle of America, 
where these tribal lines have been drawn, where people are adamant that their enemy is their neighbour, which is something that would never happen in Australia during a political vote. Like we have no yes or no campaigns at the moment that are causing us to tribalise. Praise God we're in Australia, right? This isn't us, this is someone else. This is their problem. And what we see happening is in these images is this kind of sense that something's not right. And in the last moment, we see this beautiful picture depicted, depicted of this woman caught between these two lines of protesters as they're screaming at each other and she's trying to silence out the world, which is sometimes how we can feel. What's it doing? It's painting a world that is easily offendable. It is painting a world where there are some deep issues. It's painting a world where people are angry and filled with hate. It's a world that maybe we're not unfamiliar with. And at the end of the Advertisement just says this, Jesus loves the people you hate. He gets us, all of us. That's it. There was no next step. There was no you know, website. It was just, He gets us, all of us. There may have been a website on the end, but there was no kind of like, now give your life to Jesus, one, two, three, amen. Like there was none of that. But what happened, right, is they have this ad all about what Jesus does with people who are offended. And you, do you want to know how it was received? Do you want to know what the main reaction? People were offended. In fact, we had um, Anastasia Olivia Cortez. Is that a, uh, sorry? Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Um, this um, left-wing congresswoman was like, "If Jesus was here, he would not have spent that money on that ad, right?" Yes. However, the right over here on the right side, where these people have been like, "This was nothing but left-wing progressive propaganda media. This is not Christianity at all, right?" And that's why I think when you know you're actually in the kingdom of God, where both the left and the right wing of politics are like, "You're getting it wrong." You're like, I think we may be in the right here for the first time ever. And, and there's this moment where they spent hundreds of millions of dollars. They spent just under hundred million dollars on this ad, and it causes great controversy, and people were offended. But what people missed is how inaccurate depiction it is of our world. We live in a world that is so easy to be offended. Some of you are still seething about being cut off at the roundabout. Some of you still want to know the car park dude's name who wouldn't let you park where you wanted to park. And you're like, I'm not okay. There's someone online right now that's even responding to a Facebook comment being like, you wait till I tell my mother-in-law what I really think of her cooking. Like we get offended so easily. And Jesus, is advertises this person has a different way a different forward direction, something that we could do differently. In fact, in a world where we experience anger, in a world where we experience offence, in a world where, friends, it's just a matter of time before you're offended or because before you've offended someone else, Jesus comes out, just chooses to throw a haymaker, you know, this, this Hail Mary grenade into the middle of our confusion. He says, do you want to know what I think? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, Jesus, you don't know. Like, you don't know. You don't know what was done to me. I'll love my enemies, but not that person. That person's not my enemy. They're like on a level, like they're, they're on a new level than enemy. Maybe you're here today and you're sitting there thinking, I don't have any enemies. Everyone loves me. I'm not sure that's true. Because I think it's only a matter of time before we've caused offence or before we are offended. And, and, and Jesus seems to speak into a world where this ad accurately depicted not just our world, but the response to, our, to, to the ad itself shows a mirror image of what's going on right now. Friends, there are some of you in this room that when I talk about offence, when I talk about hurt, a name comes to mind. 
There's some of you in this room right now and we talk about this. You are thinking through, please, not another sermon about how I need to love someone that I don't feel safe around. There's someone else in this room right now that is wondering if the person sitting next to you is listening because this is for them. And maybe, just maybe, it's for you. We live in a moment where Jesus has something new and fresh to say to us. And He says it. This moment of love your enemies comes in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Possibly, if not the greatest sermon of all time. Like there is no sermon I will ever preach that will ever come close to the standard of of vernacular and oratory skill of Jesus when He preaches from Matthew 5 all the way through the end of Matthew 7. It is a beautiful piece of Scripture where He actually paints a picture of what it might look like for God's kingdom to reign in the lives of humanity. It's challenging, it's convicting. Anna, who's preaching tonight, we were talking about it this week and she was telling me about how these commentators say it's it's like continually like just the hammering of our will and our character. There's a guy named Dallas Willard. We'll jump straight there if we can, Keanu. The guy named Dallas Willard says this, The Sermon on the Mount is not a set of principles to be obeyed apart from identification with Jesus Christ. It is, listen to this, it is a description of what will happen when the Holy Spirit is having His way with us. Now, here's what, the reason why I say is because you read the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you hear when Anna spoke the other week about blessed are the poor in spirit, or, or maybe you go on and you read about what it means to murder someone. It's actually about what happens in your heart, or lust is about a heart action, or how divorce is not something God wants to celebrate. And we read these things and we're like, oh, I will never, I will never be able to attain to these things. But Dallas, what I was saying is this, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus Christ painting a picture for you of what our lives could look like if we were truly surrendered to the Holy Spirit. What a good challenge. So how would we treat those who have offended us, who have hurt us, who have pained us, if we were truly surrendered to Holy Spirit? Well, before we get to love your enemies, Jesus kind of watered, started with a little bit watered down. He begins in verse 38 and He starts after a lot of moments, He says the same thing. He says, You have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for a tooth. Now, this line, you have heard it said, Jesus says a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. And He says it a lot because the Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus rebutting the law of God. It's not Jesus trying to do away with the law of God. No, He says in Matthew chapter 5, I've not come to to make the law of God void. I've come to fulfil the law of God. And when He talks about you have heard it said, what had happened is, is the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elite of the day, had actually taken the law of God given to Moses in Exodus and read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, had actually taken it and twisted it to mean what it didn't mean. See, in, in Moses' time, thousands of years before Jesus, Moses leads the people of Egypt out. He leads the people of Egypt, different story. Leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. And in that moment, there are millions of people without law, without a governing structure, without a judicial body to oversee all their actions. So God gives them a law to form and order their society after His holiness, His purity and His character. And one of the things He says is that He, he gives the judges or those who oversee the criminal system of the time a way to deal with crime. And the law in Exodus is mentioned in Exodus, Leviticus and Deuteronomy is this, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this wasn't meaning about interpersonal relationships. Like if I go and punch you, you can come and punch me back. What it was talking about is giving the judges a way for understanding how they should mediate wrongdoing. So when a case was brought before the court, there would be this, there weren't courts back then, but for our understanding, the court, there would be, if they stole a cow, you had to return a cow. It had to be proportional with what was being done wrong. 
But when we read this, what had happened in, those, in Jesus' days, the Pharisees had taken this and said, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which kind of means you can take revenge on someone for exactly what they've done against you, you can do back to them. It became this, not this way of the judicial system deciding what should happen, but of interpersonal revenge. And Jesus is saying, you got it wrong. This wasn't an encouragement for when someone stabs you, you pull a knife out and stab them back. No, no, no. It was a way of governing the society. So he goes on, and he says this, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Now it's challenging. Sometimes Jesus says stuff. And I'm like, I think you got it wrong. Jesus, I uh, should have, you know, workshopped that one a little bit. Like maybe canvassed people before you said it. You're not resisting. Do you know what an evil person is? Like, do you know who Hitler is? Not resist an evil person. But it's actually probably a, maybe a weaker translation of the text. A lot of the commentators and, and, and interpreters that I was reading this week wrestled with this deeply and said, we think this means that when an evil person is doing something, we should just let crime and evil things happen without any resisting. But actually, if you look at the examples we're about to walk through, the better translation or understanding would be, do not seek revenge against someone who does evil. Do not retaliate. Now, this is hard for us because we love revenge. There's a movie called The Revenant. I don't know if you've seen it. If you haven't seen it and you're under the age of 45, don't see it. It's, it's quite full on. And I'm not advertising this as a good movie. But Leonardo DiCaprio, he finally got an Oscar for this film, uh, plays as the main character who actually sees his son killed in front of him. And uh, a horrible murder by, by, by these evil men. And the whole movie is about two things. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio having a UFC match with a bear. And secondly, him also hunting down the people who, who did this wrong thing. And he ends up finding them and he exacts revenge upon them. That's how the movie kind of climaxes. And the movie, you're meant to feel like, yes, he finally got his own back. The problem with this is it's actually a true story. And it's not the way the true story goes. The true story is that Leonardo DiCaprio's character actually hunts down the men who killed his son and doesn't seek revenge, he forgives them. So at some stage in Hollywood, they actually rewrote the story because revenge sells. But we like revenge because revenge makes us feel satisfied. At least we think it will. They got their own. That's what they deserve. And in a moment, Jesus steps forward and goes, let me tell you what it's going to look like for someone who's controlled by the Holy Spirit. In fact, someone who's controlled by the Holy Spirit, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to them the left cheek. Now, now I was thinking about this and actually like for a while stood there practicing like, what, what, like how do you slap someone to think it through? Because the commentators were saying that to slap someone on the right cheek, if I was to come at someone and slap them like this, I wouldn't be using, I wouldn't hit their right cheek, I'd hit their left cheek. In fact, before I go there, when I was a little kid, this verse this verse was often used as a means for me to understand how I should deal with physical violence in the playground. Mum, Johnny hit me. Well, turn to him the other cheek. Can I just say that is not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is not saying just allow yourself to be physically beaten and just let it happen. Like that isn't actually the heart of this. And the reason why is because when you think about it, if you the dominant hand, which is the right hand, which in those days and age was the hand they would use to do things like this. If you were to hit someone with your right hand like this, you would hit their left, their, their left cheek. To hit someone on the right cheek, you had to do two things. You either had to backhand them or hit them with your left hand, which in those days was the dishonourable hand. To backhand someone was a sign of dishonour. To touch them with your left hand was also a sign of dishonour. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with being left-handed. Arch is a left-hand. And so, you know, we're praying and hoping he has no issues as he grows up. There's all good things about being left-handed. But back in those days, they didn't understand us. What's Jesus saying here? When people insult you, don't retaliate. It's not about physical violence. It's about how people treat us. That there are times, friends, where people will insult us. And usually it's not going to be a backhand. It's probably going to be words said about us, said to us, gossiped. It's going to be a conversation we overhear in the workplace, a text we receive from a mother-in-law or our own mother or a friend or a family member. And Jesus has this revolutionary way of saying this, that those that have the Holy Spirit at work in them don't respond. They don't retaliate. Why? Because when we are insulted, why do we want to insult them back? Because they've impugned our honour. They've made us feel less. We have to demonstrate that what they've said about us isn't true. We respond because we are insecure about who we are. But for those who have the Holy Spirit, they know this, that I'm a son or a daughter of God. And there is nothing you can take from me that the Holy Spirit has given to me. Say what you want. I am who I am. There's a boldness about those who know their identity in Christ Jesus that insults, friends, don't cause us to jump on Facebook and be keyboard warriors. That insults don't cause us to start gossiping and backbiting. That insults roll off us like water off a duck's back because we know who we are in Christ. We can look an insult in the face and go, that's not who I am. But I'm also not going to say something about you that's not who you are. Jesus goes on and He says, what else does it mean to resist an evil person? He says, if someone sues you for your shirt, give them your cloak as well. And we're like, who's suing people for their shirts? Like this is pretty personal. Back in those days, the law was that you could sue people for clothing if they had nothing else. You could take their shirt, but you couldn't take their clothes so that they could actually remain warm. But what Jesus is saying here is if someone's suing you, it's because you've hurt them. You've done something against them and they have a case for you. But He goes on to say, if someone sues you for your shirt, don't just stop at your shirt actually make the situation better by not giving them what they deserve, give them more than they deserve in response to show, hey, I will pay you back more than you deserve. Why? Because I'm not just doing an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. What I'm doing is far more to restore our relationship. This is revolutionary stuff. And we're like, oh, Michael, is that the way it works? Well, where do we see it happen? Did not Zacchaeus at the point of salvation, when he chose to follow Jesus, what did he give back? What everyone Deserved? No, did not Zacchaeus, this tax collector who had taken more money than he should have, give back more than he had taken? Why? Because the Holy Spirit, because Jesus Christ had transformed his life and his heart. It's a different way of living. It's a different kingdom. Jesus goes on and He goes on and He says, if someone asks you to walk one mile, walk with them two miles. Now this isn't because Jesus is personally invested in your Apple Watch step count. He's not thinking, man, you got to get up to 15,000 today. So let's really march it on. That's not what Jesus is preoccupied with. Back in those days, the Roman soldiers could actually ask civilians, particularly Jewish civilians, when they were walking, they said, can you please carry my pack for a mile? And by law, you had to, just one mile. So the very people who oppressed the Jewish culture, who killed Jewish people, who were carrying the very instruments of their oppression could turn to the people they were oppressing and say, carry these instruments of death for me as we walk a mile. What's Jesus saying? He said, hey, don't stop at one. Look them in the eye and go, I'll go with you too. Can you see that Jesus is revolutionising the way the Kingdom of God outworks? And finally, He says this, if someone asks you for money, 
If someone turns to you and says, can I have some money? Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now we can think that this is a great opportunity for our courtyard in a moment to become the greatest money generator for all of us that we can just walk up to wherever we want. And that you've got to, Jesus says, you've got to give me whatever I ask. Jesus is not talking about that. The, the commentators believe he was actually trying to highlight a system and a culture where Jewish people would readily give to those they knew or their family members. But if they didn't know you or if they had no relationship with you, they would be reticent to give anything towards you. And what Jesus was saying is, show no favouritism in your generosity. Give to people who you owe nothing to, who there is no relationship with to show the generosity of the Kingdom of God. You see what Jesus is doing here. He's going, let me tell you about my Kingdom. My Kingdom is not about you proving you're right. My Kingdom is not about you getting your own. My kingdom, the the Christian is not about these people living in a way where they are always the ones to be seen in power. My kingdom is subversive. I'm turning it upside down where even Roman soldiers will spend more time with my people because they're like, I'm going two miles with you, brother. You wait, you're going to become a Christian. I can just tell. That's not in the text. That's Michael's Michael's understanding. Jesus is painting a picture of a different people and a different kingdom where everything is turned upside down where people are so secure, no insult causes them to retaliate, where people are so filled with grace, they do more than what is needed to restore relationship, where people are so loving, they go the extra mile for their oppressors, where people are so kingdom-minded, they treat strangers like family with their generosity. What kind of kingdom are we at New Life? What kind of people? What a vision for the kingdom of God. My friend and one of the pastors in New Life, Alex Stark, has this great saying. He says, live a questionable life. Live a life that fills people with questions as to what do you know that I don't? We are called to face difficult people in a manner that sparks curiosity about the extraordinary kingdom you claim to be a part of. Can I just say before you today, I say none of this as an expert. Some of you know me well. And you're already preparing to write me an email. Well, Michael, you should employ that. I would readily agree with you. You know, writing this sermon last night, I didn't only write it last night, like I write it a lot and then getting before it again last night. I was just challenged again. I was texting Sarah, I was in my office and just like, just saying, I don't know if I'm doing this that well. And friends, I stand before you today, not someone that's perfected this. But as a fellow disciple saying, the Word of God brings life and love and a kingdom that I want to be a part of. I want to outwork this. The problem with where we are is we're only at the weakened point. This is the watered down version. Jesus likes, did you like that part? Well, if you didn't, you may not like the next thing. Jesus goes on and He says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy which is how the Pharisees had twisted Scripture. But I tell you, Jesus goes on, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Whoa. This is not easy. This is not easy for any of us. It's not easy for any of us to hear these words and rise up with joy going, great. Really encouraged by this. Jesus says, Don't only not retaliate. Don't only not limit repayment. Don't only just do more than what is required. Go further, go beyond. Love. Love them. 
guy named Christopher Hitchens, one of the world's most famous atheists, was doing a tour with a Christian speaker and they were debating. Um, and in one of the debates, Christopher Hitchens said this, I have no understanding why you'd want to follow a, a faith where the God would say, love your enemies. He said, I don't want to love my enemies. I want to destroy my enemies. And Nate Wilson, the, the, the son of the guy who was he was debating with, who was observing the whole thing and writing it down, he writes this, actually God wants to destroy His enemies too. He's just a different method. He wants to destroy them with love and make them his friends. I'm like, that's it. And I was seized by this vision when I was a young man. I studied history at the University of Queensland and I was gripped by the 1950s, 60s and 70s where the civil rights movement came about. Still to this day, I can recall moments just sitting just with God and captured by what it meant to live this out. As a man named Martin Luther King Jr., he was inspired by the works of guys like Gandhi and others. But Gandhi and others were inspired by the words of Jesus. And Martin Luther King Jr. looked at Gandhi and he thought to himself, you've got it, but I don't know if you've taken Jesus seriously enough. But I think what Jesus says is the solution to what's happening in America. Martin Luther King Jr., throughout his life, especially when he started leading the civil rights movement, his house was bombed with his wife and children in it. He was stabbed by someone of his own race. He was punched in the foyer of a hotel room. He was accused of being a communist. His life was threatened daily for 13 years. People would ring his house and talk to his family or him saying, we are going to kill you. And yet still, he said to the very people who threatened him, who bombed him, who stabbed him, who punched him, I will do nothing but love you. Martin Luther King, he says this, one of my favourite quotes. He says, Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. But by its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. A man named Reverend Wade Watts, who was alive at that time, took him seriously. You see, Reverend Wade Watts was an African-American preacher in the South and he was being accosted by a man named Johnny Lee Clary. Um, they've got great names, right? There's just like this beautiful names. And Johnny Lee Clary was the Grand Wizard of the KKK at the time. And he hated Reverend Wade. And there's a great interview between Johnny Lee Clary and Andrew Denton on Enough Rope. You can look at it on YouTube. And he tells this story. And Johnny Lee Clary says, I hated Reverend Wade Watts so much. I used to ring him and I'd threaten his life and say, Reverend Wade Watts. And he disguised his voice. That's what I'm trying to do with my voice. And he disguised his voice and say, Reverend Wade Watts, we're coming to kill you. I'm going to kill your whole family. And Reverend Wade Watts would be like, is that you, Johnny? It's good to hear from you, brother. God, forgive Johnny for what he's just said. He doesn't know what he's trying to do. You love him. All right, Johnny, you have a good night. And Johnny would be like, doesn't get it. So we went and built a cross on Reverend Wade Watts' front lawn and the KKK symbol, he set it on fire and there they are standing out with their hoods and their white sheets looking menacing. Come out, Reverend Wade. And as they're having this massive fire, Reverend Wade comes out and goes, no one told me we were having a fire tonight. Do you want some marshmallows and hot dogs, guys? We've got heaps of them in there. Can I help you out with any of this? They hopped in their cars. They drove away embarrassed. And then he tells this one story, Johnny Lee Clary. He says, and then we went to a restaurant one night where he and his wife were eating. And uh, we were sick of him. I was done. So I walked up to him in the middle of this white restaurant with the only black people in the room. And he says, whatever you do to that chicken, Reverend Wade, we're going to do to you. So he picked up the chicken and he kissed it. (laughs) And, And the restaurant responded just like you did. Here's the thing the 8am didn't get because, hey, anointing at the 10. 
Johnny Lee Clary went on to become a Christian, become a Pentecostal preacher, and he remembers this moment as an example of what it meant. I know it would have been way better if I said it at the eight. I'm like, <laughs> the eight are probably like, I hate that Johnny Lee Clary guy, he's a jerk. And he goes around preaching about the love of God. Why? Because the way you destroy your enemies is through love. But friends, I look at this and I'm like, it seems a lot easier for them than it does us. Why is that the case? Because I think when it's about racism, we can think, well, it's not family. It's not so close and personal. I think that is maybe underselling the effect of the civil rights movement and the horrors they faced. But we excuse ourselves. We're like, yeah, but you don't know what my mother-in-law did. I mean, I don't know if she threatened to do to you what you did to a chicken. But if she did, then there's still a way forward. And Jesus says, love your enemies. Martin Luther King goes on and he says this, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure it. We will meet your physical force with our soul force. Throw us in jail and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at midnight. Drag us out into some wayside road and leave us half dead as you beat us and we will still love you. But be assured that we'll wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win our freedom for ourselves, we'll appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. You will be our friends. Martin Luther King understood the power of love. I wonder if we do today. Who's your enemy, friends? Shall we just define it like this? Whoever wants you to be harmed, or wants ill for your life. Who is your enemy? Whoever you want to be harmed or whoever you want ill for. And you're like, Michael, there's no one I want to be harmed. All right, let's get a bit more personal. Who is the person that if they texted you right now, you would freeze? Who's the person that if they rang your phone right now, maybe not right now, because no one should answer the phone right now. If they rang your phone straight after church, you would go, ooh, I don't know if I want to pick that up. Not because you're an introvert like me and you hate taking phone calls, but because you don't want to talk to the person. I think we all have someone like that. Who's that person when on Facebook you see they bought a new car, you're like, I can't believe they bought a new car. <laughs> Who's that person on Facebook when you see that they've got the cold, you're like, yeah, you get a cold. <laughs> I have people like that. I, and I'm meant to be a pastor. I think we all do. And Jesus says to us, actually, I want those people to be my friends. That's why God says He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why does He say this? Because God is still sending His common grace out for all people that all people one day might be redeemed and turned to Him. Will they all be redeemed and turned to Him? No, I don't think so. But He wants the opportunity for them to have the chance to respond. If you love those who love you, Jesus goes on to say, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, guys, you can all talk about love till you're blue in the face all you want. Let's actually test your love. You want to know what the test of love is? To love someone is to will the good of another. Like just let's be basic right now. Bishop Barron, Catholic Friar says like that. I think it's helpful for us today. To love someone is to actively will the good of them. It's so easy to love someone that loves you. Some of you are like, well, I love my children. They are not your enemies. Just need to say that to a parent today who feels my pain. Well, I love my family, not your enemy. 
Maybe at times they can be, but sometimes we are like really chuffed that we love someone that you're meant to. But how many people do you will the good for who hurt you? That's the test of how much you understand the love of God. Like who's that person in your life you don't want to take the call for? Do you will good for them? That's what Jesus means by enemy love. Friends, how many of us are falling short of that right now? Some of us are sitting here going, yeah, but Michael, I genuinely don't think I have enemies. Like I, I don't, like I love everyone and everyone loves me. I'm a really happy person. If you're a really happy person, you have enemies. <laughs> Trust me. The, se- the second thing I'd say is we keep people in like a grey area of our world where we don't want to call them our friends or family, but we're like, oh, no, they're not my enemy, but let me tell you what she did. It's like, I think we just need to be faster. They're either your neighbour or they're your enemy. All right, let's just say, there's two big, two categories in the world. Someone's your neighbour or your enemy. Here's the problem. There's only one thing Jesus says to do to both, love them. So you just need to get faster classifying more people as your enemy so you know what to do next. Yeah, but they hurt me. Cool, call them your enemy. Why? Oh, because I can give you a way out. Oh, fine, they're my enemy. Cool, let's pray for them. And let's love them. Oh, I thought we were going to take them out. More people in your world need to be your enemies. Here's why. Because it's clear what we do. We love them and we pray for them. But there are some of you here going, Michael, I'm not going to will the good for someone who I can't be safe around. Let's just be real. There's some people sitting here right now hearing this saying, Michael, I cannot love that person. I cannot be near that person. It is not safe for me. And do not confuse what Jesus is saying here as to remain in this moment of evil. Jesus is not saying that if you are in an abusive relationship, remain. He is not saying remain in a place that is unsafe for you or your family just for love. That's not love, that's unwise. But love, Jesus says, can look different. You can will the good for someone from far away. How do we do that? Pray for them. Pray for them. Why does Christ call us to pray for them? Because it does something not only to us, but we believe. Jesus, I pray that you would restrain them from doing evil. Jesus, I pray that they would stop hurting people. What a powerful thing to pray. Jesus, I pray you'd bring an end to what's going on. Jesus, I pray that they might come to know you. Would they know your presence? Would you redeem them and cleanse their heart? What a powerful thing to pray. There are people in your world right now who you're hanging the phone up on who Jesus is saying, pray for that person. Pray for that person. And there is no one in this room who has a person in their life they can't pray for. Who are you praying for today? Michael, why would we do this? Why would we do this? Why would we pray for someone? Why would we all will good towards someone? Because I actually believe that what Jesus is doing here is He's teaching us what it means to be a Christian. But the problem is that we can think what Jesus is saying, you have to do this to belong. In fact, in verse 44, it says this, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And we can think that if you don't love your enemies, then you don't get to be a child of God. That That's the conclusion. And I I actually think that's a really dangerous conclusion. The whole Sermon on the Mount is not about what we do to earn our salvation. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about what happens in our life once we've been saved. 
that this is the fruit of someone who's experienced the love of Christ. John Piper says it like this, Loving our enemies is a proof that the power of the kingdom has entered your life, not a payment for the power of the kingdom to enter your life. Loving your enemy doesn't earn you the reward of heaven. Treasuring the reward of, reward of heaven empowers you to love your enemy. Because here's the truth, friends, quite simply. The truth is this, that you were once enemies with God. Romans 5 is clear. There's not a person in this room that because of your sin and rebellion, that what you wanted to do was build your kingdom, that we have not been enemies with Christ. We were all once enemies with God. You might have grown up in the church, friend. You were an enemy with God, acting like a Pharisee, pretending like we are better than other people until God's grace humbled us and saved us. We have all been enemies of God. And here's the question. What did we do as enemies for God? Our sin, what happened with our sin? Did not our sin pin His Son to a tree? Did not your sin leave Jesus Christ bloodied and hanging from a cross. Why? Because it was the only way back. But you don't know what they've done to me, Michael. Do you know what we've done to God? And in response, what did He do? Revenge, retaliation, insult for insult. Love, love. And on the cross, what did He say? Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they do. Why did He do this? Because love, friends, is not some hippie word that we all clap our hands around and think it's gonna make the world a better place. No, it is going to make the world a better place. Because enemy love is the only thing that has saved and redeemed the world because God first had love for His enemies. So too can you have love for yours. And only when we meditate on the love of God that abused, violently tore apart and demanded a sacrifice of His Son, can we realise that we can love those who hurt us? Friends, maybe you're here today and you're struggling with this. The grace of God wants to remind you that when you are loved by God, it's His love flowing through you that extends to others. Who's on your list? Who are you called to love today? Let's pray. Gracious God, we just pause for a moment. God, I just want to repent. I want to lead us in repentance. God, where has offence led us to be more like the world than like your son? Where are we holding on to hurt and pain rather than letting it go? Where, oh God, are you calling us to receive your love that we might grant and give your love? We pray for that person right now on our hearts all those people, would you bless them? If they are perpetrating hurt, would you stop their hurt and their evil? And would they come to know you deeper and richer? Lead us to forgive them as you have forgiven us. And show us what it means to will their good. 
Friends, as we sit here in this moment, just with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I ask, is there anyone in this room right now who has never experienced the saving love of God? But you realise right now that your sins have made you an outcast and a rebel, that you want to come home and experience a love that you don't deserve but you freely get. If you're here right now and you want to respond to the love of Jesus Christ, that you might not only receive it, but that you might let it flow through you towards others. If you want to repent for your sins, turn and follow Jesus. I just want to make an offer right now. If that's you in this moment, would you just raise your hand wherever you are? Thank you, Jesus. I see your hand. I see your hand. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Father, I just pray for those two people with their hands raised right now. In Jesus' name, would you wash them? Would you cleanse them? Would you teach them your forgiveness? Friends, it's going to lead you in a prayer. Every Christian in this room is going to pray it together. Would you pray these words after me? Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I want to know your love. Would you wash me clean? Show me your love and show me how to love. Be my Lord, my Saviour, my friend. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Father, I thank you for those two people who raised their hands today. Lord, would you bless them and would they know your love and your goodness? Would they be overwhelmed by your grace they don't deserve, but that is freely given to them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.